Welcome to the podcast Potables Network. You're listening to Punches and Potables brought to you by the Andrew Boss team at Berkshire Hathaway. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast, leave us a five-star rating, and review on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter and untapped at Process Potables and on Instagram at Podcast Potables Network. Check out our other shows, Post Game Potables, our new pod coming to you immediately following every Eagles game. This week, Dan, Steve, and Corey talked about the embarrassing Eagles and Bengals tie. Power Bombs and Potables, our weekly professional wrestling podcast, which dropped a new episode Monday, and the flagship show Process Potables, which will have a new episode as soon as the Sixers hire a new head coach. For news, blog posts, info on breweries that we've worked with, and more, check out www.processpotables.com. Punches and Potables is on tap. Cheers, everybody. Welcome, everybody, to the second episode of Punches and Potables. My name is Paul Ryan, here with our co-host, Rob Huber. What's going on, everyone? And we'd like to thank you all for coming back and appreciate to anybody who listened to us. We appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. That was uh, that was a fun first episode, uh, you know, our first swing of doing this podcast. And uh, to see that it was very well received is, you know, only going to push us to keep, keep at it, keep, keep doing these uh, as often as we possibly can for you. 100%. And we got a lot to talk about, so we're going to just jump right in. We just got done the pay-per-view, and there's a good amount to cover. We're going to try to blow through some of the simpler stuff and get to the more important stuff. So first off, we're going to start with the first fight of the prelims, William Knight versus Aleska Kamar. Yeah, I mean, this was a pretty, let's dare I say, unanimous <laughs> one. Uh, it, it was pretty textbook from start to finish. Uh, for all of those who uh, maybe didn't see, or if you don't have Twitter, uh, which you should, and also follow us, uh, we were live tweeting from Buffalo Wild Wings, and uh, we also, after every single fight, put, unless there was a TKO or submission victory, we put Paul's uh, decision on it, mine, as well as then what the judge's determination was. This one was very easy. I don't think anybody that was watching UFC fan or not in the entire restaurant thought that that fight was not a one-sided victory. Oh, yeah. William Knight came out and uh, dominated that fight from start to finish. Yeah, overall impressive. There's not really too much to talk about. I mean, he came out, he did what he had to do. Uh, Not a very um, positive showing from um, Alexa. So, you know, we'll we'll see what's next in store for William Knight. But for his ranking, you know, uh, it's, it's a good step in the right direction and a good showing for him to kind of get his name continually out there. And moving on, next we had Shane Young versus Ludovic Klein. And again, that was a very one-sided affair with Klein coming in with the first-round KO or TKO. Yeah, TKO a minute and 16 seconds in. Yeah, I mean, there's not much to talk about. When, When there's a minute and 16 seconds into the fight, you're laying somebody out as quickly as he did. Oh, yeah, he definitely deserved a bonus that night, and... He's in store for some something big coming forward. Definitely. And here we go. Here's where it gets started. Jake Matthews versus Diego Sanchez. Jake Matthews dominated this fight. Diego was never in this fight at all. Absolutely. Um, to to watch it, you, you, you want to root for Diego Sanchez just because he's been in the game for so long. What a popular name. What an icon in MMA overall, but Jake Matthews knew that. Jake Matthews knew what was on the line, and Jake Matthews went in and destroyed. And it hurts. It hurts me. I was such a Diego fan. I followed him from his the first season of The Ultimate Fighter. Most people think of The Ultimate Fighter and go right to Forrest Griffin, but he was also a season one winner of The Ultimate Fighter. And he's had longevity to be around this long, but he looked old, he looked slow, he looked sloppy, out of shape. This just was not a good showing for him. It brings us back to kind of the topic that I know we disagreed with last week, but to go back to last week's episode when I was hurt more not with Cowboy's ability to still go in there and put on a show and 
potentially still win fights by decision or by knockout, but just watching someone on the older side who's been in the game for so long, who most people are just genuinely a fan of because they're not so much all this hype and rage and, you know, the publicity stunt aspect of it. So you've been with this fighter, like you said, from season one of The Ultimate Fighter, and you almost just, you don't want them to retire, but at the same time, you kind of want them to stop getting beat up so bad because it's, like you said, it's painful to watch. I mean, great on Jake Matthews. Absolutely fantastic for him, but, I, I mean, that whole fight was just me cringing at just how devastating Diego Sanchez was just getting demolished. Yeah, I don't know what's next for Diego, but the thing I do know is he said that after his next couple fights, when his contract runs out, he is retiring. So I'm happy about that, but I don't know, honestly, what I'd like to see next for him. But as for Jake Matthews, I think a good name for him going forward would be somebody like Randy Rudeboy Brown. That would be an incredible fight just to watch. Honestly, I mean, I became a Jake Matthews fan pretty much just this past weekend. You know, I, I knew of him. I saw previous fights, but the way that he went in there, especially when Diego did start at some point to kind of put the pressure on him a little bit. He didn't go in guns blazing. And you could hear some of the commentators as well over the weekend kind of talk about that as well. They were mentioning how he looked more like a veteran because especially going up against a name like Diego Sanchez, you want to get that TKO. You want to get the victory. You want to put your name on the map and say, this is who I am. I demolished, which he did. It took him all three rounds in a decision. He did it though but he didn't go out there and just rush and then potentially get trapped. He stayed out there and really just, he he put on a textbook show of how to be calm in the octagon and get the fight done, get a win. Would he have liked something a little bit more significant? Sure. But a win's a win. And that was one hell of an impressive win. It hurts my soul. It hurts my soul to see Diego like this. Yeah. Take me back to when he was the nightmare. And he had three fights that could potentially be in the Hall of Fame. He's a borderline Hall of Famer. But at this point, he's pretty much done. And I honestly have no clue who could be next for him. Yeah, borderline is right. And it's almost unfortunate that maybe this back end of his career is why it's borderline compared to maybe if he would have left on a high note, it would have been more definitive, at least in my opinion. Of course, this is podcast is pretty much both of our opinions through a lot of it outside of the stats themselves the victories the losses who's next to fight who but in my opinion I think if Diego Sanchez would have left not at the very very top of his game of course because then why are you leaving but if he would have left on top a little bit then I don't think it would be a question of if he would be a hall of famer one day (sighs) it hurts but moving on Next, we had the main card of the prelims, Brad Rydell versus Alex De Silva. That was an entertaining fight, back and forth. I thought De Silva won round one, but once Brad got in there, settled down, made his adjustments, he took over rounds two and three. Yeah, and like you said, it was a good fight to watch. Um, I wasn't upset by any means with either fighter. Now, did Rydell come out and definitively make a statement And in the second two rounds, you know, I think round one was a little, it could go one way or another. I agree. I think Da Silva genuinely did win the first round, but there's no question about it when it came down to the judges' scorecards, how we viewed it. Um, I think this was one where as well we both said it has to be unanimous decision on Rydell. And, I mean, it was. Those last two rounds, really, he just put the nail in the coffin. That's right. Now, we're going to talk about what's next for them, but it's going to come with the next fight, the main first fight of the main card, Hakeem Dawadu versus Zubaira. I'm going to butcher this last name. Tukhugov? That'd be close enough for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, Dawadu? I mean, that was... <laughs> he was impressive. I mean, I hate using the same word impressive, but this the prelims and this main card really just... I, I had a great time this weekend watching watching these fights. Hakeem Dawadu definitely showed up to fight, and when it was a stand-up fight, it showed he was clearly the better striker. 
and the rounds he stuffed the takedown are the rounds he won, which is what got him the victory. Um, the one point where he was with his hands down screaming, stop running, I could have done without that. <laughs> you know, just keep your hands up and keep moving forward because eventually somebody's going to pop you in the mouth and put you to sleep if you do something like that. Now, now is that is that what he said? Did he say stop running? Because I'm fairly certain the ref would not have yelled at him if he just said stop running because I'm fairly certain the ref had to tell him stop cursing because he didn't say stop. He may have said stop running, but he specifically told him to fucking fight me. Like, just right right in his face, screaming at him like a lion's roar. He looked him dead in the eyes and then said, fucking fight me. And he didn't. He ran. He kept backing up, and he did not want to fucking fight him. I was trying to keep it PG, but hey. I'm not. If we're going there, let's go there. But... <laughs> The one round Zubair won, it was the one round he was able to take him down. That's, that's the only thing you could really say that Zubaira did well. Once he took him down, he was able to hold him down. And that one surprised us a little bit, came out to a split decision, and the one judge gave all three rounds to Hakeem Dawadu, which I didn't understand either. Yeah, if you go back and check the Twitter, that that's right. We both said unanimous decision Dawadu on that one, and... I was a little bit surprised having to type that in, that the judges went split decision. And during the next fight, that's when you brought up the actual scorecard itself. To, so if one judge across the board is definitively saying Dawadu is by far unanimous decision in this, for the other judges as well as you know for the scorecard overall to just come out and see a split decision, it was confusing. Uh, not the craziest thing we've ever seen by any means when it comes to the final judge's scorecard for a fight. Um, but, I mean, Reyes Jones. But, but yeah, I mean, that one was fun to watch. Dawadu came back after being taken down. He His sprawl and his takedown defense was absolutely immaculate after that. So that just, to me, shows a good fighter overall someone who took what happened, a potential loss of a round, and then came back and made sure that if that's what that fighter's going to do, it's no longer going to work because you quickly were able to adapt and learn from your mistakes and then come back and get a definitive victory. Oh, yeah, he's uh, he's going to get a fight going forward. I don't think it'll be in the top 15 yet, but he'll definitely get a bigger fight and probably stay on the main card. Absolutely. The next fight was the only female fight of the main card. Ketlin Vieira versus Sajara Eubanks. Absolute slaughter. <laughs> I mean, unanimous decision, 100%. No question about it. I know we're going to get into Eubanks a little bit, but Vieira, how impressive. You know, to take on Eubanks, who has a reputation, maybe not the best one, but has a reputation, like I know you call her a bully, but at a weight class down. So to come out and just textbook, so clean, you know, every single round she just came with a better and better game plan, and it, 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 was, it was a slaughter. Well, Sarge's last couple fights have been at Bantamweight, and she has been surging, even though she's been the underdog in all those fights, and she got herself ranked. So this is the first time she's fighting somebody in the top 10, and it showed she's not ready to be there. What she needs to do is go back, get herself a nutritionist, and find a way so she can cut down and make weight to flyweight again. Because the reason she was kicked out of flyweight is because she kept missing weight. And at flyweight, she was much more successful because she was a bigger, stronger girl and could bully these girls, stuff takedowns, and throw bombs and put people to sleep. And for... More casual fans, I think they're still aware of weight cutting being a major part of the mixed martial arts world. Uh, any type of martial arts, you, you know, kickboxing, boxing, you know, any different program, UFC, Bellator, you know, whatever you're watching when it comes to Olympic wrestling, whatever it is, there's a major aspect, and I think because weigh-ins have become sort of a specu- you know, a spectator 
aspect. It's more of an entertainment. It's more fun to watch now, and especially because a lot of people don't know that they're weighing in earlier in the day or in the morning, and then that weigh-in that's on the stage and the face-down isn't the actual weigh-in, so to say. So if you are involved in mixed martial arts or any type of fighting, wrestling, kickboxing, Muay Thai, if you can go from a substantial weight higher and then drop down and make that weight cut, not only is it physically tasking, but if you can do it and then you rehydrate, you eat up, you refeed, and then you get in there for the actual fight, you could come in 15 to 20 pounds heavier into a fight feeling pumped to all holy hell because now you've been feeding the body that you've been dehydrating for the past week, and you can absolutely go in there and dominate. It's exactly like you said. If she finds the proper nutritionist or if she finds somebody that can help her really focus on the diet aspect and getting down to that weight class, she could get herself back in you know, the top 10. She could get herself where she needs to be, but I don't see it happening after this fight in this weight class. Yeah, definitely not at 145. Or, sorry, 135 at Bantamweight. Now, for Ketlin Vieira, normally I try to look ahead and try to put them against somebody ahead of them, but... I think this would be a good fight for Sarah McMahon because it's still a pretty big name. She is a former title contender and a former, I think the highest rank she got was top two. So, and she's coming back from injury and she's going to be looking for a win to get herself back into the top names. Yeah. With Vieira, um, what I'm seeing here for her is Irene Aldana, who we're going to get to later. That's who she had to beat in order to get to Holly Holm. So, Vieira, don't throw her away whatsoever, especially after such a significant win over Eubanks. I think that's only cemented her going forward in the fact that we are going to see more of her. The fact that she was on the main card is not something that we're going to see dissipate. I think we're going to continue to see her name on the main card going forward. And I think she's a fighter who genuinely wants to fight and wants to fight often. I don't think that her weight drop in order to make weight is as substantial. So I think that it's going to be a quick turnaround for her. I think that we're going to see her fairly soon, and I would not be surprised again if it's on a main card fight. The next fight up was Kai Carr France versus Brandon Royville, and once again, this was a very one-sided affair. There was nowhere in this fight that Kai Carr France was leading. In the stand-up, wrestling, the grappling... It was Brandon Royville, start to finish. And I will admit, I did not know anything about Brandon Royville. I saw him walk out to the octagon. I did not think that he had nearly as good of a chance as he clearly did because he went in there and demolished. There was no question about it. He went in there looking for a fight, sincerely wanting to end it. Clearly he did in a very impressive way with that submission. But I I counted him out. I did what I always tell myself not to do when it comes to fighters especially, and I judged a book by its cover. As soon as he walked out, he took his shirt off in order to get checked out by the ref before entering the octagon. I was laughing. I completely counted him out before he even stepped a single foot into the octagon. And I feel like maybe he kind of knew that. I feel like he sensed that. Because from the first punch, he shut me up real quick. Because, man, is this kid impressive. Yeah, and he called out a guy who's been a perennial top tenner, top five guy in Juice Formiga. And I think that's a great fight for him going forward. Absolutely. Stylistically, too. That would just be incredible to watch. From what I saw, the performance he put in over this past weekend, I would love to watch that fight hands down. And after what he did as well, I think he 100% deserves it. Now we're going to get to the two title fights, but we're going to do them backwards. We're going to talk about Israel Adesanya versus Paulo Costa first. Now, again, this one was very one-sided, but I was surprised. Not because Izzy isn't a great fighter, but because Costa did not show up with the same veracity, pressure, and force he normally comes into the octagon with. Yeah, I wish you could all see the smile on my face right now and the fact that I'm super giddy because if you listen back to last weekend's fight... Paul was very, very confident that, what was it, the second or third, that it was going to be a win by a TKO? Fourth. 
four. I, I, I'll have to go back and check the tape. But uh, I caught a fourth round win for both guys. <laughs> yeah, well, you were wrong with both guys. So uh, I am ecstatic. Uh, clearly, based off of last weekend as well as uh, right now, I am a big Adesanya fan. Now, granted, I was also a little bit disappointed in Paulo Costa. I wanted to see a little bit of a fight, but there was none. He didn't come in. He didn't charge. He he was playing a little bit more defense, which was surprising even for me, which at first made me a little bit nervous almost as well because Adesanya is a very fantastic defensive striker. You know, on the backup and dodging those punches is normally where he's going to take advantage. And if he lands something there, that's where he's going to be able to capitalize and then start coming forward. Paulo Costa didn't do anything. No, he just stood still and let him chew him up, and the one time he did finally decide to come in, he got cracked. Let's take a look at his leg, all of the welts. The fact, I I think that may have been just for me personally, the first time I've actually seen blood from somebody's leg because of how bad the leg kicks were. You started to see the welts. Granted, at first, a lot of what we're seeing like uh, right off the bat, the second that it started, the first leg kick at Asanya landed. Everyone was like, oh, do you see the bruises? Some of that was cupping. But that also leads to Adesanya being a fantastic mixed martial artist and just his ring awareness, being a veteran of the sport. You see the cupping marks, especially on somebody's leg, attack the leg. Not only has a leg kick been more and more popular and how destructive it can be, clearly, but if you see that someone's clearly injured there or that they've had to have some type of physical therapy in a certain spot, attack it. They decided to get in the ring. If you're going to get in there with an injury or some sort of you know, soreness, that's your own fault. Adesanya did that, but then it was clear those welts that we continue to see grow were no longer cupping suction marks. And then he started to bleed from the leg, and then he started to see that cut above the eye, more on the forehead. I mean, it was, it was devastating for Costa. Yeah, I don't know if he was injured or if he was drained from the weight cut because coming into this camp, he was 45 pounds overweight, but he did not come in and fight like he normally does. So what's next? For Izzy, it's easy. Winner of Jared Cannonier and Robert Whitaker is next in line for the title. Of course, and not only did he mention it in the octagon, then Dana White was asked about it by numerous people after and the post-fight conferences, and he agreed. He said as long as he wins the next fight, that is the fight to make. That is what is going to happen. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. That's the fight that's going to happen. That's Adesanya's next fight as long as he wins. Right, and next for Paulo Costa, I think a good fight for him to come back to would be Derek Brunson. That one would be a slugfest. Brunson is undefeated since moving camps to Henry Hoofts. He's down there with Kamara Usman, Anthony Rumble Johnson. He's with a good camp. This would be a good test for both of them. If Brunson wins, that can move him right up into title contention. Absolutely it could. Because not only are you fighting, potentially, uh, the person who just lost to the champion, so obviously still highly ranked. He's still going to be up there. No one's throwing Paulo Costa back to the bottom of the top 10 by any means. So you get in there. You potentially have a victory over him and say Adesanya retains, then, yeah, I mean, that that would just absolutely make sense as Adesanya's not next fight since we just talked about that, but the following one after that, I would be elated to see that. However, I think if Paulo Costa came in more prepared, didn't have to cut so much weight in such a short period of time, which I didn't understand as well, how are you going to come in that heavy when you know how long this fight's been in the, in works. the mix. Yeah. So how, how are, how are you going to come in so soon that heavy? And that kind of leads to what Adesanya was losing the shit about in the octagon as well, which Dana White also stated later in the press conference that that's more of a health commissioner thing, not so much a UFC thing. Now, personally, I don't know how much I believe that, but, you know, if, if UFC is paying them, I don't know how it's more of a health commissioner thing than it is a UFC thing. But, yeah, if you start telling guys 
you're not just going to get a 30% pay deduction. You're going to get a 50, 60, 70. And Adesanya was saying 80 or 90% of your pay is gone if you can't make weight by a certain time. No one is showing up on that scale overweight. Not a single pound, not a single ounce. They're all coming in at weight. Picking up bad habits from Kelvin Gastelum. That's what he's doing. Yeah, he is. Absolutely. Now, before we get into the next fight, every time I look at you, you got this colorful little can over there next to your whiskey. What you drinking today? So, first of all, yes, I am drinking beer and whiskey. Um, so, what I have beer-wise is from Hysteria Brewing Company. This is absolutely amazing. I picked it because it is called Space Panda, but from what I've been told, because there's a raccoon on the label, they have one called Trash Panda, hence the raccoon and now he is wearing a nice little space suit and sticking the flag into what i'm going to assume is the moon but anytime i see space i think galaxy hops uh daniel morgan is that correct yes usually i mean that's not necessarily why they call it that but i believe that one does have galaxy hops and you are correct about the panda reference i believe trash panda is one of their flagship beers and so a lot of the variations they do of that then tend to play off of the name Trying to think, I know there was Space Panda, Trash Panda. I know there's been other ones, but I think those are the only two that I've had since they're down in Maryland. Uh, a nice pit stop for me when I travel between there and Virginia for either work or when you happen to live down there for a little bit. That's where <laughs> that one came from. So, uh, although they are not in the general range of what we usually talk about on here, they are a tremendous brewery. Uh, they do a lot of lactose sours, which apparently is a big Maryland thing and is one of the best combinations. In beer that I've ever had, so uh, have not had a bad beer from them yet. Yeah, and it is solid. I mean, my favorite beer overall of all time is Space Dust, so from Elysian. So that's why, again, anytime I see space, I'm hoping it means Galaxy Hops, because apparently Galaxy Hops are something I am a very big fan of. Uh, I have decided as well to pair it with a small one-ounce pour of Woodford Reserve. So... What I'm calling this little getup here with a very fine, high-quality beer as well as a very fine, high-quality bourbon. Is I owe Dan 10 bucks? Yes, but it's also what I'm going to start calling a center citywide just because it's a little bit more classy than your typical citywide where you get some well whiskey that you're not even sure if it's whiskey and a, a tall boy of PBR. Yeah, the Space Panda is their trash panda. They dry hop it with an F-ton of galaxy hops. So <laughs> it is exactly, that's what they say. Well, it's delicious. So, um, so Paul, what is that that you're drinking? I have their Der Schmicky Mickey from Beach House Brewery. It's a very light hoppy flavor. I don't know. I'm not big on the overbearing hoppy flavored IPAs and pale ales, but this one isn't overbearing at all. It's nice. Yeah, Beach House being from the uh, Belmar slash Asbury area, not the Belmar next to us, but up on the Jersey Shore. Uh, a lot of great breweries in that area. Me and my wife frequent that area very often, not only generally for entertainment purposes like concerts and stuff because of the, oh, what is that venue there called now? I don't think, oh, uh, like House of in House of Independence. That's what it's called. Um, a lot of great shows up there in that little downtown area of Asbury is, is, is thriving. There's a great distillery there, a lot of good breweries, Dark City, another one of our favorites. So we've done the uh, whole kind of roundabout there of all those breweries. And one day we were able to go check out Beach House. And at Beer Fests the past few years, I don't recall ever being too impressed with their beers, but getting to go to their tap room was a whole other world. So I don't know if there was a change in direction that I missed or anything like that but there was a big difference between what my experiences were with them in limited samplings at festivals and then actually getting to go there and experience all the beers they had to offer they had uh, over a dozen beers on tap the day that I went plenty of them were incredibly fantastic a a big uh, room with beer to go and merch and everything so was very impressed with them and uh since I'm joining you guys here, running the board and everything, I'm, I'm drinking as well. So I have this Fruity Pebbles by Bolero Snort. And I know a lot of people probably jump to beers like this with gimmicky kind of flavors. This is obviously a play off of Fruity Pebbles, the cereal. But if you're expecting some kind of pure fruit, sour, uh, sugary f- flavor, you're not going to get this. And I, I feel like this is a big debate. I don't know where you guys stand, but I'd be curious to know. 
because this doesn't taste like you reached into a box of Fruity Pebbles mm-hmm. and ate a handful. This tastes like the milk after you finish the cereal. So I will ask you guys this non-MMA-related question. Where do you stand on the milk after you eat your cereal? Do you drink it or do you dump it? I always drink it. Yeah, 100%. Okay, good. Then we're three for three here. Yeah, so this is made with milk sugar. So there's a lot of milk flavor. So you get the fruitiness, but it doesn't bite at all. It's very subtle because of the milk sugar smoothing out this beer. It still has, you know, your kind of IPA hoppiness, but everything is just mellow out by that milk sugar. That's definitely the prevailing flavor here, but it's creamy. Very nice. Big fan of, of everything Bolero Snort does up in North Jersey, right by the Meadowlands, that is on our bucket list to get up to one day. Now, before we jump right back into the, I'll call it co-main event. Oh, you want to play an ad? Great. <laughs> no, what a, um, when you mentioned that venue, uh, did it replace the Stone Pony? No. Okay. Stone no. Pony's still there. Oh, House of God. Independence is in the, uh, the, the, the downtown area. Stone Pony is up by uh, Asbury Lane's. And all that, um, yeah. a little more north of there, and kind of right off the boardwalk. This is in like this is in the bar area, so all the restaurants, the bars, everything, right on like the main drag there. This is right in there. It's a tremendous venue. Yeah, I, I just got super seen, nervous when you said that. No. I was just like, seen Bayside there, seen the movie life there, mm-hmm. seen Hawthorne Heights there. A lot of really good shows, and you and like smaller shows. It's probably it's like maybe sixty percent of the TLA. Oh, wow, and the TLA is already super small. And it's very much like the TLA because you walk in and you're on the up top part with a bar and a rail, and then there's stairs down to the floor, and that's it. So Solid. I'm guessing a 1,000 tops in there, probably not even. Yeah, because well, TLA is without any expansion they may have done, which I don't know how they possibly could have, but back from when I used to work there, it was, I think, around thirteen to 1,400 people. Yeah, then this is probably under a 1,000 because TLA is actually a lot bigger. Put it in perspective, Trocadero was... 1,027 people. Yeah, this is probably under a thousand. This is probably more like 800, Solid. 750, 800. Great venue, though. All right, all right, all right. Enough of that. Let's get back on topic. <laughs> so the co-main event was another title fight, Dominic Reyes versus Jan Blahowitz. And another one-sided event because one guy decided he wasn't going to show up to fight, it looked like. It looked like Reyes did not want to be there. I don't know if it was injury or if those body kicks hurt, if he was timid. But he did not come in with his usual movement, his volume. He just kind of stood there and let Jan do whatever he wanted. I love that you said, I don't know if maybe those body kicks hurt him. Did you see the welts? I have yet to research it. I don't know if it's public information, if it's something I can research. I want to know not if he has broken ribs, but how many broken ribs he has. Those I've never in my life... Like, and both from kicks and both title fights in a main card, I've never seen somebody bleed from the leg, and I've never seen a solid top-of-the-foot footprint, including toes, in somebody's ribcage, bruised after one kick. And then, I forget who said it, um, like I, I forget who was commentating the fight that, that brought it up. It was either Felder or Anik. I think it may have been Felder. Just thinking of like the voice in the back of my head that, you know, I remember saying it. But when they were going over the fight after he got the TKO and they were waiting to raise his hand as and knew, they were talking about how there must have been a laser just attached to his foot because it hit the same spot every time. Outside of a couple leg kicks here and there, anytime he threw that kick to the body, if they went back and showed it in slow motion, it hit the same exact spot. So not only talking about how great of a fighter and the skill set that Jan has, but, I mean, yeah, he absolutely hurt him. You can see Reyes was very, very hesitant to lift that elbow away from his ribcage, which then pulled his guard down on the right side a little bit. Because obviously, if you're pulling the elbow down trying to cover the rib cage, you're leaving your chin, the back of the ear, you know, the whole jawline, top of your head, above the eye. That whole entire shoulder up to, you know, the top of your head is all going to be right there. And if you're going to try and move it up into guard, covering your head from your rib cage fast enough, when you 
think that Jan is throwing a punch, you're going to lose that battle. Because not only can this guy kick, not only does he have two absolutely nasty submission victories, but his knockout power and speed along with his punches is perfect. Well, talking about what's next, there's a guy who, if he wins his fight, has already shown he's not afraid of any of that with Jan. And that would be the winner of Tiago Santos versus Glover Teixeira. I believe the winner of that fight should fight Jan for the title, and the loser of that fight should fight Reyes next. So who would you take in that one? Santos. Yeah, I, I'm not even going to try and argue that. That's, that's For me, I think that's pretty spot on, and I would love to watch that. And like I said, I don't think he's afraid of Jan because he's already beaten Jan. Yeah, and why would you be? At that point, that's a great confidence booster. You're going in to the title... So thinking, I'm already in contention. I have one fight, potentially, that gets me to the title. And then if I get that opportunity, it's against somebody that I took out. Why would you not have a little bit of confidence and a lack of fear when it comes to that? Yeah, I think Santos is definitely next and I Now, don't get me wrong, I could be completely wrong and Glover could pull off the upset. But right now, where they are in their career, I'm just not seeing it. Now, after the fight... Jan did call out John Jones, but we all know that's not happening right now. John is going up to heavyweight. He's looking for the title fight. Does he deserve it? Absolutely. But I don't think he's going to get it right away because I do think they want to do Stipe, Francis Ngannou first. So should John wait or should John take a fight? I honestly think he should take a fight. And there is a fight right now scheduled between Derek Lewis and Curtis Blades. I think he should fight the winner of that fight as a title eliminator for the winner of Stipe versus Francis. Now, see, for me, I think John is running to heavyweight. Um, and I completely disagree that does he deserve the title fight immediately? No. Is he one of the greats? Yes. Regardless of what I think about who he is as a person, the trouble that he's gotten to and all of that, I can't take away from his skill set how good of a fighter he is, regardless if most of the time he tends to potentially be juiced up, even if the levels come in low. But I can't take away from his natural ability in the octagon, regardless of the very, very low amounts of illegal steroids when it comes to the sport itself. You know, there, There's things that he does in the octagon that he's not benefiting from you know, his reflex speed, you know, when you're thinking any type of anabolic steroid, it might help with his power behind his punches or his kicks sometimes, but his speed, his footwork, his head movement, uh, obviously his dickish confidence, you can't really, you know, you're not getting any more of that just because of a very low trace of steroids in your system. But I still think that he needs to fight somebody, at least one fight, Give him a top contender. Sure, the matchup you said, I think you know either would be great, but I, I I don't agree that he can just go up to heavyweight and then be like, all right, give me a title fight just because I'm John Jones. Yeah, but you know Dana White's going to give him that. It's John Jones. It's kind of like your boy McGregor. Dana White gives him whatever he wants. Uncle Dana says yes. But moving on, we'll get to Connor in a little bit. Up next, we're going to talk about Dana White coming out and saying that he is sidelining the Masvidal-Diaz fight to book Colby Covington-Jorge Masvidal. And I am not okay with any of this, like, at all. I mean, I've been, ever since the, the last Diaz-Masvidal fight, I've been waiting for the next Masvidal-Diaz fight. I want it. I want it to happen. I don't give a shit about Colby Covington. We all know that. As a person, as a fighter, where his career is going, don't care. I'll talk about it, of course, but I've been excited. I want that rematch. I want the BMF belt to go off again, and I want it to be a rematch between Diaz and Masvidal. I'm not happy. Dana White, I hope you're listening. Well, the problem is the story writes itself. They used to live together, used to train together, used to be best friends. Now they're not, and they're in the same weight division. They're both in the top five. They both lost to Kamaru Usman, and they're both trying to get that title fight back. 
the story basically writes itself, especially since they said they don't like each other. There's been a lot of trash talking in the media. And Jorge basically said when he sees Colby, it's on site. And Jorge's the guy who's gangster enough to do it. So if Colby's not careful, he's going to be the next one like Leon Edwards to catch that three-piece in a soda. Yeah. Uh, and I can only hope and wish that that is, in fact, the case. But I'm a Masvidal fan. I am. He's also one that I might not agree with in terms of an ethical, moral, or political standpoint. But his skill set in the ring, his confidence, um, it's it's odd because I don't know if it's his cocky yet calm demeanor that makes me appreciate his confidence more than someone like McGregor when he went overboard with all of his antics, especially when it came to Khabib and calling out like his religion and his teammates. And all. I, that, that's way too much even for me as a Conor McGregor fan. Um, so I don't know if it's Jorge's calm, cool, collective demeanor while he's also throwing the most shade possible but I appreciate his confidence and his cockiness. Again, I think it's just how he does it, but I also love those moments where he just kind of snaps and then it's, like you said, on site, where previously you and I had a discussion where I was like, I, I don't know, I think that one might be boring. Not the fight itself, but just the press conference, the weigh-ins, the stare-down, everything. I think I thought it might be boring. And then as this fight gets announced and Masvidal becomes more vocal and he starts talking more about the relationship. Colby starts talking more about the relationship between the two of them. I'm now excited to see the trash talking, the entertainment aspect of it all. But I also just want Masvidal to go in there and kind of end it like he did with Ben Askren. I would hope that would be the end result, but I feel it's going to be very similar to Usman where Colby's just going to take him down and beat him up on the floor. That's just the way it goes with wrestlers versus strikers, especially with a wrestler at Colby's level. But there are fights this weekend, and there's not a lot of star power. There isn't. But the good thing about these kind of fights is these guys who are on these fights, on these cards, show up to fight to make a name for themselves. So you can never truly miss or overlook a card. But as for the star power, there are two female fights with big implications, but... I think it's safe to say the same for both of them. Holly Holm versus Irene Aldana and Jermaine Durandame versus Juliana Pena. Both of these fights, Holly Holm and Jermaine are trying to stay in that top contender spot. And Irene and Juliana are trying to win and put their names in the hat for Amanda Nunes' next title fight down at 135. So let's not go main event just yet. Um, Now for me... When it comes to Juliana Pena, somewhat of a name, again, maybe a more casual mixed martial arts fan would still kind of recognize that name. For me personally, I'm thinking Jermaine's going to take it. You know, I, I think she has a lot more to lose. And I don't know, just in previous fights and stylistically for both fighters, um, I, I just think that she's going to show up with more of a determination to win. I mean, Jermaine's great, but ever since her title vacation at 145, I have little to no respect for her. That being said, I also think Juliana has a style and skill set with her wrestling that can beat Jermaine. Because if you think about it, she's been out for a while, so ring rust might be real, but she's been Mm -hmm. out for a while for injury and a pregnancy. But her only loss in the UFC was Valentina Shevchenko which we talked about last week when it comes to do you have a loss, but who did you lose to? Is it great to see a number on your record on the opposite side of things? No, absolutely not. No fighter ever wants that. You want to be perfect. You want to be the Adesanya. You want to be Khabib. You want to be you know Floyd Mayweather. You want to go out there and have an absolutely pristine, perfect record that nobody's touched. In a not-so-perfect world that we live in, of course, more times than not, it's not going to happen for you. So when you're looking at who you lost to, it's almost as impressive as what your win streak is. Now, unless you have 10 losses and one win, then not so much. You could lose 10 times to the best fighters out there, but you still lost 10 times. 
But if you have few losses and your few losses are to some of the greatest fighters in your division, I mean, I, I think that I think that has to mean something still when you're looking at the skill set of the fighter. If it's someone who's on the bottom of the top 10, but the only reason they're at the bottom of the top 10 is because they've faced maybe the top three a couple times because they also were in that top five or the top four or in the top three for a while. And then periodically due to life events and things like that, you're finding yourself more towards the back end of things. You know, I I, I think you're still, in my opinion, a very skilled top rated, you know, prospect at that point. As for the main event with Holly, I'm just picking Holly, not because of name recognition, but because I think she needs it more. She needs it more, yes. I think she needs this more because I don't know what is going to happen in terms of her rating. I shouldn't say her rating because she has the name and she's been big for a while. Um, but I, I don't think I necessarily agree in terms of well, I guess she needs it more. I think Aldana wants it more. And I think that should be obvious in her ranking versus Holly, what this could do to her if she happens to be a name like Holly Holm with what she's done already, where this could place her and where she could go if she happens to wind up in title contention because she knocked out, submitted, or went unanimous decision against Holly freaking Holm. Like, that's that's a big move. Now, the other fight on there that... I said I was excited about, but you weren't, is Court McGee versus Carlos Condit. Yeah, I mean, I get it. Court has a great story, for those of you who don't know. He's a former heroin addict who cleaned himself up, won the Ultimate Fighter, and has been around. He's always been a guy on the outside looking into the top 15, but he's not a guy you can overlook. And as for Condit, he is a former interim champion. He's fought the best guys in the world, and he's beat big names like Nick Diaz and Rory McDonald. The exciting thing that I find about this fight is both guys are coming off of a loss, as well as what you mentioned earlier. On these cards where, again, I'm going to say more casual, every now and then watchers of the UFC, or if you get people who are like, oh, I hear there's a big pay-per-view, or that one big name is on there, or there's more people with belts on the poster, you know, whatever might draw more casual fans in. I like what you said earlier about how you can't count these fight nights or pay-per-views out. There's something that you should absolutely be watching because time and time again, sometimes you hear a lot of people going, I just spent how much money on a fight just to watch two guys stand in the middle of the ring and not really do anything. And for it to come to a split decision or unanimous decision, Thankfully, this past weekend, two guys didn't show up to fight, but the other two guys did, and there was some action, and we got to watch something. But there's been a plenty of times where we've watched pay-per-views, and we've spent a, a good amount of money to do it to watch absolutely nothing happen. I don't think that's going to happen in the prelims. I don't think it's going to happen in the main card. I think that these are the fighters that you are going to see go after each other because... They almost have nothing else to lose, but they have everything to gain. Yep, definitely going to go out there and try to make a name for themselves. Now, here's the part where Rob's going to be, we're gonna I don't know, a little Conor upset McGregor. because we're going to talk about his boy, Conor McGregor. Now, coming into this, Conor retired because he didn't get his way. Classic. So he asked for Justin Gaethje. They told him, no, Gaethje's going to fight Khabib. And now we have texts out that after he was told no on Gaethje, he asked for Diego Sanchez, which at this point in his career makes absolutely no sense. It doesn't. At all. That's just Connor looking for an easy payday and a win yep. and a name on his resume. It's dumb. No promoter was going to do that fight. Then he comes out and says, I'm going to box Pacquiao. All while he's being investigated for indecent exposure and attempted sexual assault. Standard for Connor. And now the newest thing, which is the fight I said they should have made all along, and you've been hearing me say this for months, yeah, was Connor McGregor versus Dustin Poirier. Now they said to it, they agreed to it on Twitter. I don't think Connor has the balls to actually sign the dotted line to fight Dustin Poirier on December 12th, like they agreed upon. And 
the big reason people want to fight Dustin right now, Khabib said, if you want to fight me and the fight between me and GSP isn't going to happen, that's the guy you got to beat to get to me. You would think Connor would jump at that. But yet, I still don't think when it comes down to it, he will sign the dotted line. He 100% will, and there's one reason why, and it's what motivates Conor McGregor more than anything in the entire world. Money. Why did Poirier-Ferguson not happen? Because they couldn't come to an agreement with Poirier about the cost of the fight or what he wanted, his payday, his guarantee, you know, win, lose, or draw. And then Ferguson stepped in and said, just give the guy the money. Like, I want to fight him because Khabib said, the guy you have to go through in order to get to me is Dustin Poirier, and they could not come to an agreement. Now, that's because UFC and Dana White don't think they're going to get as big of a turnover. Now, is Tony Ferguson versus Dustin Poirier a fantastic fight? Something I would love to see? A great matchup? Absolutely. As big of a Ferguson fan as I am, do I think Poirier would still come out on top of that? Yes. But it's not as big of a money fight. You're talking Conor McGregor, regardless if you hate him, love him, whatever. If you hate what he did to the game, you love what he did to the game. He changed the game when he came on the scene. If we're talking everything from the press conference before the antics even started, he was one of the first to show up in a three-piece suit, doing whatever he wanted to, styling, and just went for it. How many people do you see now, even at the post-fight press conference, let alone the weigh-ins, the pre-fight conference, with three-piece suits on, dressing to impress, showing off the money? Doing, I mean, the guy has changed the game forever. Whether you like it or hate what he's done to it or what he's done to fighters or what fighters expect, he's changed it. Conor McGregor's money. Dustin Poirier wants more money. If the UFC is giving both fighters the paycheck they want, Conor McGregor will sign that dotted line, but unfortunately he'll probably get his ass beat. I don't think Conor will take that fight because he's already said multiple times he's not interested in Dustin because he already beat them at 145. And Dustin gave him the ultimate compliment, saying that loss changed the way he looked at the fight game and the way he trained, which turned Dustin into the fighter he is. But, you know, Connor being Connor, he's going to, everybody likes to say, he fights anybody, he fights anybody. No, he doesn't. No. He ducks and avoids people, because if he didn't, he would have defended those belts, or he would have given Jose Aldo that rematch he promised him that never happened. Or, you know, we would have had the end of the trilogy between him and Nate Diaz. And the thing that everybody that is listening needs to know is the fact that, yes, I am a big Conor McGregor fan. Paul has heard this a million times as well, whether he wants to agree or not. I don't approve of Conor McGregor's antics from the past couple of years. Ever since the whole Dolly incident, Khabib's run-in with Conor's teammates and all of that, it was too much. He went off the rails. He went on a very big downward spiral that led him into just this fame and fortune Disney child actor star, my life is going, you know, absolutely nowhere but focusing on the money, you know, kind of this drug, sex, and rock and roll type attitude instead of focusing on the fights. I hate that he dodges fights. When they dropped his titles, I was 100% in agreement to it because if you're not going to fight, you don't deserve them. But am I a fan of McGregor in the octagon? How he fights, his style, his ability, what he brought to the UFC in terms of entertainment before he started going off the rails, as well as the attention that he brought to the UFC as well. I mean, it was going downhill, and then you have this up-and-coming star who was genuinely a kid when they first recognized him for fighting in Ireland, who came up and did incredible things, beat all of the names, was going weight class to weight class, just demolishing everybody with legitimate wins, I mean, you can't take away from that. So am I a Conor McGregor fan in the octagon? Absolutely. Am I a fan of the fact that he's been dodging fights and he is now just strictly a money fight guy? No. He, he's not making me proud in that sense. And especially if he's just going to continue to live his life this way, you know, it's, it's, it's not something I'm a fan of. What about his whiskey? All right, so proper 12 whiskey. Uh Connor, if you're listening, as if Dana White or Connor McGregor is going to listen to this, but you never know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so might as well get it out there. Uh, I very much appreciate it. I appreciate you making it. 
I love the vanilla notes that yep. it gets when you take a shot and it goes down a little bit more smooth because of that hint of vanilla that's in there through the casks that you make it through. If you ever want to have a drink, uh, myself and Paul and Daniel Morgan are very much here for you. And uh, we, we will cheers to you at any point as three American Irishmen would. Fantastic chilled whiskey shot. Absolutely. All right, back to Connor's fighters. Um, <laughs> the boxing thing. I think even that's a mistake because Pacquiao's not Mayweather. Pacquiao's not going to dance around. Pacquiao's going to come and take your head off. Pacquiao will do what Connor, what Mayweather didn't do. Mayweather got the win for a TKO, but Connor was still standing. Pacquiao will put you to sleep. Absolutely, he will. But guess why Connor's doing it? Oh wait, money. I mentioned it. Yeah, money, money, money. It's all about money for Conor McGregor. If someone's going to throw that money in his face, especially with how many lawsuits and people that he has to pay off at this point, he's going to take the money. That's why he's going to fight Poirier, because Poirier wanted more money. He didn't get it. Poirier's going to get more money for facing Conor McGregor instead of Ferguson. And then Conor McGregor coming back out of retirement again is going to be a big draw. It's going to be a huge pay-per-view, and it's going to be money. I honestly think Conor doesn't want Khabib to win because I don't think he takes this fight. I think if Khabib loses, they will automatically give him that title shot against Justin Gaethje. And I said this time and time again, as much as I like Gaethje, Conor is a terrible match for Gaethje. And Khabib and Tony are terrible matches for Conor. Now, the entire time we've been talking, I've been playing this matchmaker game. Now with Michael Chandler into the mix, I've been saying for the longest time, it should be Gaethje, Khabib, Conor versus Dustin, Dan Hooker versus Tony Ferguson and Mike Chandler's first fight in the UFC should be against Paul Felder. And I really think Felder is not necessarily washed up, but I think he spent too much time commentating fights instead of training. I think, I mean, if, if it's Mike Chandler versus Paul Felder, I'm fine with that because you know, I'm a big Mike Chandler fan. So I'm fine. If you want Mike Chandler to come in and then just knock Felder out to the ground Don't count out Philadelphia's own Paul Felder that easily. He has fought, I want to say, eight, nine months ago in a war with Dan Hooker that I thought it it was a split decision that went to Hooker, but I thought he won, but it was one of those fights where it was close enough that I'm not upset either way. But he did win a split decision that I thought he lost before that fight with Edson Barbosa, and you know how tough those two dudes are. So only being eight, nine months out of a fight and jumping right back into a camp and welcoming a new guy to the organization, I believe last time I checked the world rankings, Felder was nine and Chandler was 15 in the world rankings. I, I, it's not as easy as you think, and you know from being in this area, Philly guys show up. They're going to fight. All you got to do is look at uh, Chandler's two wars with Eddie Alvarez. Sure, and I'll never take away from that, and I love the Philly fighters, I do, but Michael Chandler is always ready to go. He has one speed. That's it. He's always prepared. He's always in the gym. There is no camps for him because he's just always prepared. If That's why they gave him the opportunity, not so much just to rile up the media, but Mike Chandler is legitimately always ready to fight at his weight class. If he has to, if he gets two weeks' notice, he'll be able to drop the what eight to ten pounds in order to make weight. Because the guy is always chiseled, he's always ready to fight, he's always ready to go no matter what. And that's his whole slogan: is he's like everyone who knows who I am knows I have one speed. Knowing your luck, they'll probably book Chandler McGregor first, and then you'll be so torn, and I'll just get to sit back, smile, and laugh at you. I will. Say it right now on the recorded podcast. If it's Chandler versus McGregor, I'm rooting for Chandler. And that's because of all of the shit that McGregor's been pulling. I can't, like, I like Michael Chandler as a person and as a fighter. His athleticism, everything about him, his training, how hard he goes, his personality, and just, like, his overall enthusiasm towards fighting. I will 100% say right now on the podcast, if there's ever Mike Chandler versus Conor McGregor, I'm going with Mike Chandler. I know for a fact that hurts his soul. It does. It really does. Conor McGregor, I'm sorry, and I'll still take a shot of whiskey with you. I'll buy the bottle. I'll take the Jameson. (laughs) But that'll do it for today's podcast. Thank you very much for listening to the second ever Punches and Potables. 
Hopefully we'll see you later. Thank you.